another edition of Behind the Lens. I am film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias. You can find my movie reviews and interviews around the globe in the U.S. and abroad, in print and online, 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here on AdrenalineRadio.com, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And don't forget... If you miss the show live, you can find the show as a podcast on iTunes, on BehindTheLensOnline.net, on Stitcher. Uh, we also have a video compliment that appears on YouTube about a week, uh, a week to 10 days after the show airs live. So never worry if you miss us. You can find us everywhere. And of course, if you're listening now and you want to watch the live stream, you can do so on Facebook on the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page. Because our beloved and trusted station owner, Nick Fedoroff, loves toys and loves to stream things live. So, check it out. Tune in, log on. We're on right now. But, jam-packed show today, everybody. And uh, during the night, I had to do a little retooling on today's show with the passing of Tab Hunter, a legend, an icon, one of the last bastions from the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, several years ago, uh, he had written an autobiography, Tab Hunter Confidential. It was then turned into a documentary, which was outstanding. Uh, in connection with that documentary, I had a chance to sit down with Tab and talk to him at length um, for well over an hour about his life, about the documentary, about the book. Uh, for us, it was a reunion of sorts because the first time Tab ever met me, I was eight months old. And it was on sound stages at WFIL-TV at 46 and Market in Philadelphia. Uh, so we got a good chuckle over that. But in light of his passing at age 86, he, his birthday would have been Wednesday. He would have turned 87. Um, I thought it appropriate to pull out at least a small clip of my interview with Tab as he talks about a little about his upbringing and about the studio system. So take a listen. But well, I tell you, I was very fortunate. I had a really terrific, wonderful German hard-headed mother who was fabulous and downs. But I'll tell you something, you know, I think it's terrific that, you know, that, that, that there were boundaries. And I question a lot of that today. I think it started quite a few years ago and Paris just became la-di-da-di-da, you know, I have to, I have to be me. And, uh, uh, you know, it went from there. I, I think, uh-oh, what's going on here? I kind of like the fact that there are boundaries. You know, that was the wonderful thing about being part of the studio system. You know, and there was an aura of mystery about movie people when I was a kid. My gosh. Yeah. You know, they were they were untouchables. It was a wonderful thing. And, and you know, I thought, whoa, I'd love to be an actor. And I fell into it. It was funny because my mother said nothing for show. And what do I do? I wind up in showbiz, for gosh <laughs> sake. I was the end of that studio system. It was really interesting because, uh, you know, you were working for these people, these moguls like Jack Warner, Harry Cohn, Daryl Zanuck, Louis B. Mayer. I mean, they ran tight ships. And if you didn't play the game the way they wanted it, you were out and someone else was in. It was that simple. Well, and what I find about your career is the fact that, no, Jack Warner bent over backwards for you. He was very good. He really was. And, you know, uh, the great thing I love is my sexuality was never discussed. No. It was a thread in the tapestry of my life. Now, you know, with this documentary, something that I found very touching are all of these stars from the golden days of Hollywood. You've got Robert Wagner. You've got Connie Stevens. Even critics like Rona Barrett and Rex Reed and Debbie Reynolds talking about you. How does that make you feel? feel very good, I've got to tell you. You know, I was really thrilled when Alan asked, he said, I want to, I want to have you know, the, your friends of that 
time, you know, your contemporaries uh, talk about Hollywood and about you, and and I, and I, I just think it's interesting because you don't see a lot of them anymore. But R.J. is such a great guy, Debbie. I've known her since she was just out of the the, the, the Burbank High School, was blowing a French horn for God's sakes. You know, Warner Brothers signed her and they dropped her, and she went to MGM and became a huge star. <laughs> but things like that happen. You know, timing is everything, isn't it? And and yes, timing is everything in in Hollywood, and uh, this is a sad time right now for everybody uh, who loves classic film, who loves the classic era, and who loves Tab Hunter. Uh, my heart goes out to his longtime partner and producer, uh, Alan Glazer. Alan and Tab were together for over thirty years. Uh, you know, I'd ask him if he hadn't been an actor, what, what what would he have done? And he said, become a horse trainer. That was the greatest love in his life. Um, but the one thing he wanted is, he said, I'm happy to be forgotten. Well, I've got news for you, Tab. Wherever you are, you will never be forgotten. So that is, I will actually be pulling that entire interview and putting it up on BehindTheLensOnline.net at some point uh, this week. Now, let's move on to a little more upbeat, uh, but no less psychologically thrilling uh, and exciting uh, interviews with a film called Seven Splinters in Time. Uh, it is mind-blowing. Uh, it is written and directed by Gabriel Judah Weinshell. It stars Eduardo Ballerini, uh, Lynn Cohen, Austin Pendleton, uh, Greg Bennick, and Al Sapienza. It is about time travel. And needless to say, the idea of seven splinters in time is our main character, played by Eduardo, who is splintered into seven characters. And yes, one of the fascinating things with this film is that Eduardo plays all seven characters on this indie, low-budget, no-budget film. The film is absolutely outstanding. Visually, it is it, it, you are entranced. Uh, cinematographer George Nicholas works so collaboratively with Gabriel. Uh, in addition, they've got over 300 visual effects, special effects shots in this film. 300. Um, on an indie level film. Called a sci-fi noir meld, uh, asking existential questions. I did some in-depth interviews uh, the end of last week with Gabriel and Eduardo, let me let you get a flavor right now. The interviews will be out later on BehindTheLensOnline.net on, and a few other places. But for right now, take a listen first as I talk with Gabriel as to where did the idea for time traveling and seven splinters of a personality uh, and this whole fantastical journey come from? Where did the uh, did the idea, What what was the germ that sprouted this idea in your mind that you went, hmm, I've got to write a script like this, and then, hmm, I've got to make this. Well, it was very, it was very cart before the horse. In an odd way, the film came about in an unconventional, very nonlinear path. I, I had a few scripts that were making their rounds. In Hollywood, I mean, I, I, that's actually ambitious to say in Hollywood because it was they didn't get that far. It was during the recession uh, of 2008, so it was a really hard time for a, a fledgling screenwriter to get something greenlit. And out of that frustration, that sense that I was spinning my wheels, I just wanted to start capturing images. And I had, I always have been a really visual filmmaker, and I had a lot of images in my head that were just to get out and I called up an old friend and collaborator the the cinematographer George Nicholas and I said we just have to start shooting and at that point we really didn't have a script I think even the concept we didn't quite have and some of those early images actually ended up in the film the the shot of the VHF tape washing up on the beach and the shot of the woman butcher covered in blood mm -hmm. And from there, a sort of momentum took form, and I had this this sort of conceit to make a film like a painter makes a painting. My mother's a painter, and I think growing up around that, sort of watching her artistic process, I learned something about how you, you can kind of live in the moment as an artist, and you respond to 
the line you're you're painting as you're painting it, and or or much the same way maybe a jazz musician is playing the solo and inventing the, the music in the moment, which is obviously a really cumbersome way to make a film or or, or high risk way to make a film because the the uh, the resources it takes to make a film, if you waste them and you go to the wrong direction, it's it's much more disastrous. But nonetheless, that was sort of my concept. So to answer your question, this is a roundabout way of answering your question about the script. It really developed in a uh, organic, inchoate type of way, and it wasn't. It, we it was only really maybe two weeks before we started principal photography that we had locked the script, and we had um, a lot of images for the film already shot. Mm-hmm. And I think hopefully that lends itself to the, the slightly more extemporaneous and organic feeling of the film. It doesn't feel so, you know, if you think about like Sid Field's, you know, rules of uh, screenplay where there's these clear arcs, maybe it feels it's a little more, uh, a little more organic than that. Although I think we then tried to impose more structure both in the last minute screenplay writing and then in the editing. Well, the beauty of having so many in- images initially, and I'm glad you mentioned the the female butcher with the blood on her, because the mm. way you then judiciously use that bright, bright red in a few frames further on in the film, such as where you're tinting, you know, the Polaroid-esque look of the yellow sun, the yellow wheat fields, the blue sky as the young couple are driving down the road. Um really, you know, key moments like that and that stands out in your mind. And I think that probably aided in what you ended up doing with some of the visuals. But having so many images up front before a script, that really lends itself to the whole idea of fractured psyches and a metaphor for the moments and memories of your life. Because everything is not shot in 35 millimeter film. Everything is not shot on a smartphone now for today's millennials, you know, everything is not shot on a red epic. Um, and here it's like we're going through time with this whole multimedia extravaganza. And it just, it feeds the mind while we're getting to understand the story behind it. Oh my gosh, it's so gratifying to hear somebody uh, get that because it's sort of a, it's, a, it's an underlying theme of the film and, and something. George, our, our cinematographer, and I talked about a lot is that the film, there's sort of this under, underlying uh, con, uh, concept of the film that it's about film itself. And, and we really were trying to, um, in both being celluloid lovers and, you know, really like students of film, we were really, uh, we were really invested in trying to show all these different mediums, both because we were really enamored with them you know we wanted to play with all those different mediums but like you said it's really a film about memory and anybody you know living through the 20th and 21st century experiences memory in a a weird way refracted back through the mediums that have captured our memories so you know uh, maybe an older generation will remember early black and white photographs and then uh, the next generation will remember you know eight millimeter home video and then I grew up with you know half inch linear videotape and then you know kids younger than me are going to remember their iphone videos Mm -hmm. and so so in a strange way our our memory is shaped by the the medium that captured those memories and i think that's exactly what we were trying to play with is this idea that memory is this kind of collage of different textures and that's how we experience it the cinematography within the different media that you're shooting with you're framing the color, the uh, your lighting, the saturation, the, the tactile sense we get. You've got the white on white with additional shades of white uh, in Omphalus. You've got the, the desaturated grays and the ice cool bluish grays uh, when we first meet Darius in the police station. Then you, you slowly add in a little more colors. Things get fleshed out. Then yeah. you, you bring in Laurie Krupp's incredible production design and some of those great buildings once we get Austin Pendleton's character in there. So you've got the grandeur of the old world and you feel the history of by then what we know as time travel. Just so exquisitely captured, Gabe. Beautiful. Oh, thank you. Uh, one of the things we, George and I talked about is, is trying to make a contrast between the world of 
Darius is sort of fractured, uh, anemic life and the world of his memories that he's trying to get back to mm-hmm. as this sort of this adenic state that, you know, his his late, you know, adolescence and early 20s and that kind of magical time that he's lost. It's like this lost paradise. So we really wanted that to be clear in both like the saturation levels, but also, also the textures, you know, that stuff we purposely shot in film, the, the, the memories are we wanted a, a very organic sense and then we wanted similarly it was really helpful to shoot Darius's world the world that he's sort of lost in in this very bleached out digital pristine uh very clean you know mm-hmm. soulless space so so there we were like we were trying to figure out we both had a lot of mixed feelings about the red this was maybe 2011 so the red was you know already a, a pretty viable camera to shoot a, a you know a, a feature film on, but we still had a nostalgia for what 35 millimeter could do, mm-hmm. and and so we thought, okay, let's let's not try to hide the fact that it's we're shooting digitally. Let's contrast it with the the textural richness of celluloid. And that was the wonderful writer director of Seven Splinters in Life, Gabriel J. Weinshell. Um, we're going to come back to the clip I have of. Eduardo Ballerini uh, later on the show because we've got Ben Roush holding on the phone right now to talk about the emoji song. Um, But I can't recommend Seven Splinters highly enough for you. It really, it is thought provoking. It, uh, it opens your, expands your mind. It expands your perception of the universe and the world. And truly you will be able to put Gabriel on the map as a director to watch because of his his ability and his uh inher- the inherent nature of his skill set in implementing visuals and mixing them and matching them and just turning out this exquisite ex- emotional and visual experience. So, we will come back to more of Seven Splinters in time, but right now, we're going to welcome the one and only Ben Roush is with us again. Hello, Ben. Hey, how you doing? I am fine. I am so happy to have you back on Behind the Lens. How have you Thank been? Thank you. It's great to be back. I mean, you've been a busy little bee since you were on with uh, talking about Jersey Christmas. You complete yeah. th- this past Christmas. You were the keyboardist for Darlene Love on her Christmas tour from November to February. Yep, that was a blast. She's amazing. And, of course, everybody, everybody just loves Darlene Love and can't get enough of her. Um, You know, ever since David Letterman left the air, you know, Christmas is is not quite as merry without her. I agree. I agree, yeah. But to catch her, you got to catch her on the road. But there you were with her for all those months. I mean, that. Yeah. That is just outstanding. Was, thank you, thank you. Yeah, it was a blast. It was, um, it was just incredible. You know, she's one. She's a legend, and you know, she's worked with everybody. She's got stories about Elvis and like, you know, people. You know, that basically started rock and roll. Mm-hmm. You know, and she was involved in it. So it was, it was crazy to like be a part of that. And you know, there's, I'm still on board with her. You know, there's going to be a tour coming up, and you know, I'm still playing for her. So it's, I'm looking forward to more, more dates. Ooh, any idea when the next tour is? You know, she tends to tour for like nine, nine, ten months. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, they haven't announced announced any official dates yet, but you know, hopefully, hopefully soon they will. Oh my God, that for you, yeah. for you as a singer, songwriter, actor, entertainer, to get to work with someone of Darlene's magnitude and with the history yeah. and wealth of background that she brings to the table. You know, what does that do to you? What do you learn from working with her? You know, uh, she's, you know, you see, you see, you know, from a lot of different people like that have longevity, what, you know, what, what it is that it takes to have that, you know, Mm -hmm. that's what I aspire to. I want to be doing this when I'm 80 or 90 years old still, you know. uh, Let's let's clarify that Darlene is not 80 or 90 years old. No, she's not. She's not. She's seven, she's seventy six, actually. Believe it or not, um, and she looks like she's fifty. 
Um, but she's going to be doing it when she's 80 or 90 years old. Yes. You know, she'll, she'll, do, she'll be doing it. You know, she just, she's professional and she's focused and she treats her workers well, you know, and she's a family woman. You know, she, um, you know, she doesn't like, she doesn't drink or party or anything like that. I don't think she ever did, you know, so you know, that's kind of, that's what I, I, I try and do, you know, mm-hmm. um, I do love a good, uh, biscuit every once in a while i'm not gonna lie to you but um you know i, I we have to we can't be too hard on ourselves i think you know so so, um, I, so working with darlene i've got to ask you and i've interviewed darlene yeah. before so i know how oh, much cool. i know how much fun she is um yeah. but i'm curious did you ask her at all about playing mrs roger murtaugh in the lethal weapon franchise <laughs> you know she she talks a little bit about it yeah she, she does um you know yeah, I mean it's it's part of her her yeah you know her her fame and you know what people know her from, but um yeah I mean she's I mean for me for me what 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 she, what's amazing about her is like there was so much she did that people don't know about that shaped rock and roll mm-hmm. you know she she recorded hundreds of songs with Phil Spector yep. you know early on and you know creating the wall of sound and like just being around all those early people and you know talking about you know Elvis and like. There's a story of her, like, actually, you can find it online of her, like, talking about Elvis and, like, being in his trailer. And he's like, you know, Darlene, I've never been with a black woman. And she's like, and you never will, you know, <laughs> or you'll never be with this one or, you know, something like that, you know. And I can um, just hear her saying that, too. Oh, my. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a respectable lady. I mean, she, she doesn't compromise her morals. No, she doesn't. She's got a very strict standard, and she adheres to that. You know, and I'm so, right. and I'm so excited for you getting this opportunity because you are such a gifted singer songwriter yourself. I mean, Jersey Christmas, Thank you. I still love that and the music video. And now you've got the emoji song, which I don't, I can't tell you how many times I've listened to already and watched the the music video. Uh, it's another. Oh, thank you. I am so in love with as much, you know how much I love Jersey Christmas. But now with the yes. the emoji song and what you do with the music video and inserting all the little emojis throughout the video, it is just, number one, it's eye-catching and it's cute. But again, the song is great. As Dick Clark would have said, it's got a great beat and you can dance to it. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and a testament to the emoji song is that you are the winner of the USA Songwriting Competition for Best Novelty Comedy Song for the yeah. Emoji Song. Yeah. That's... Yeah, and actually, I just found out, like, three or four days ago, I got a, an American Songwriting Award for it as well. Oh, my God. Well, you know, yeah. while you're on the line here, you know, I've got, like, a 30-second clip of the song I pulled out. So Great. stay on the line, and we're going to play a little bit of the emoji song, and then we'll talk some more about it. Fireworks and burgers and corn and fries with American flags and Fourth of July. A center swim guy, canoe guy, a guy on ice skates, a pink heart, a purple heart, a heart that just breaks. Now she has left me, so please tell me why this happened. Squinty face is starting to cry Oh, the answer was simple When our text did reply I sent you many emojis For being a guy Yeah, okay So how does a guy send too many emojis, Ben? Uh, how does a guy what? How does a guy send too many emojis? Was this song based on <clears throat> personal experience? Oh, not at all. I don't even have a cell phone, Debbie. <laughs> not at all. Um, do you hear the sarcasm across yes. the line? Um, yeah, you, of course, yeah. It's, it's based on, you know, not exact truth, you know what I mean? But it's, I think sometimes we have to exaggerate the truth in order to see the, the truth, the real truth. Right. You know, so, um, yeah, I mean, I think this is what we're going through nowadays where, you know, we're, we're being judged by, you know, the, the capital, how many capitals we use in our text, how much, how many, how much bold we use or underlining we use in our emails, and you know, definitely the emojis or, or the bit bit emojis are a part of it. You know that is it too much? Is it too soon? How is it too many? Um, is it you know not at three in the morning? 
when you know, I'm trying to sleep or, you know, there's all of that that goes into relationships now. We're not being judged, you know, by just our interaction on a, on a, a live, you know, interpersonal level. It's, it's like how we use technology is also we're being judged by that, too. You know, and how we use the art artistry. If you want to get deep, how do we use the artistry of technology, which, which I believe is emoji? Well, you and, know, the, um, and what I love what you do in the music video is while you have emojis there, you also, in character, are acting out what would be the actual interpersonal, in-person relationship. You know, especially yeah. the farm animal one is just too cute with you dressed as, you know, <laughs> Mr. Green Jeans and with, you know, the goats and the donkeys. And, I mean, just you, I mean, you cover the the gambit here. I mean, the gambit, you've got, you know, your fire department, your farmer, business. <laughs> you just do everything so that people can actually see what the actual, if, you know, if you get off your phone and get rid of emojis, what real life interaction might be. And I really right. love that contrast that you have going in the music video. I think it just, it works fabulously. And then the song itself is just, uh, it, it's just, it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it was a blast shooting it, you know, and, and you know, there's, all, there's a thing about, you know, it's also masculine, feminine, like what? Right masculine feminine and and uh you know what what's too feminine and how people judge you for that or what's too masculine you know uh and it's all through emoji you know it's all through text you know mm-hmm. it's all through this 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 phone relationship and yeah i mean that was a fun so much fun shooting on a, on a real farm and like you know they say you should never work with kids or animals <laughs> but i i took a chance you know on having some real goats and donkeys in this video you know. I mean, it's it's. I mean, you were on football fields. You're everywhere in this thing. How, Thank you. How long did it take to shoot the music video, and how many locations did you actually have? I mean, you put you God, know I, so many music videos, as you know, so many are shot on a soundstage or in one location, and then there's a lot yep. of VFX afterwards. You have multiple locations. Yeah. Um, we were really lucky. I mean, we, that was part of the whole thing of the pre-production, like looking for these places and like scouting these places and finding them and allowing them, asking them and, and, and them saying yes. Like the Bud Lake Fire Department, we shot in Bud Lake. That's where like the monster truck place that was also the farm, you know, uh, was. And Bud Lake Fire Department was like right down the road. And I know I wanted something like that. And they were so kind to us. And they let us, you know, shoot there. And like some of the real firemen are in the video and, uh, you know, I didn't know, like, if they were going to let us take out that fire truck and like, hey, what do you want the fire truck? <laughs> and I was like, oh, my God, it's a dream come true. Um, can we light a house on fire? They're like, no, you can't do that. <laughs> you know, don't push your luck. They let you play with the fire truck. Right. That's, you, right. You That's know. right. Can I drink out of the hose? They're like, no, there's a water fountain right over there. Oh, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but as I, I mean, where can people... Hear and find the emoji song. I know it's on. I know the music video is on YouTube. What, yep. Where? If you go to uh, Ben Ra- Ben Rausch Music on YouTube, uh, the the song is also on iTunes and Spotify and uh, anywhere Amazon Music, um, anywhere that music is streamed or bought, um, it's there. Uh, my um, my my Instagram is Ben Rausch One B E N R A U C H One and. My uh, Facebook is Ben Roush Updates, and uh, my home address, if you want to come by and, like, I'll perform the song for you live and in person, <laughs> is... No, I'm joking. I'm like, I can't give that. Well, no. I, I would only be able to do it, like, three times, and I'd be tired. Well, that's, you know... Uh, but that's okay. You're in New York anyway. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, but hey, yeah. you know... But no, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be heading, you know, probably within the year, you know, I'm... I'm looking at property in Jersey to go back and forth. By you co- are. I am. I am. You know, um, we'll, we'll talk because, you know, I know some real estate people in Jersey. I'm from Jersey originally. Um, well, my, grand, my, some- my grandparents, um, dad had a house. We still have, the family still has the house down in Lake Barnegat area in southern Jersey. Down near Beach Haven, Beautiful. Seaside Heights and all that. Yeah. So, nice. uh, yeah, so, you know, I do like Jersey. 
I'm from Philly, Me but too. you know, I like I I like going down the shore. Yes, Go, that's you know they have fixed Asbury Park up so much. Have they? It's it's so beautiful. Uh, I don't want to tell too many people that because it's like I love going there, and then it's not going to get crowded. You know, more crowded than it already is. Oh well. But, um, you know what's also really up and coming? Jersey City is really up and coming. Really, There's some amazing places in Jersey City. Yeah. Yeah, we shot we shot actually downtown yogurt the yogurt shop that's in in the video. Uh-huh. Um, they're uh, they're in Jersey City by Grove and they have been so kind to us, allowing us to shoot there. And like I'm friends with the owner now, and um, they've been helping promote the video. It's, it's amazing. So I mean that area by Grove Street is is incredible. There's tons of restaurants and just great people. People don't have too much of a Jersey accent because they're close enough to New York. Mm-hmm. So if that bothers you, you know. You know, um, yeah, but no, it's like once I head back east, you know, I'm going to want an in-person performance. So, you know, come, come on by. <laughs> we'll, we'll get together. Definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking uh, right now. I'm looking to uh, book uh, book some, you know, I'm, I'm in the process of, you know, booking, you know, uh, live performances for my, you know, because this is part of a full album called Tales from the Turnpike. Mm-hmm. Uh, the full album is called Tales from the Turnpike. So. That that's coming out hopefully you know in pretty soon you know and um, I'm I'm in the process of like booking performances and tours and so hopefully I'm going to be doing a lot of live shows well, in hope, the near future. Hopefully as well. you'll be doing them out here in L.A. too for all your fans out here. I would love that. I'm, yeah, I'm working on that. Well, you know, I'm working on that. And how long before? Because you told me about Tales from the Turnpike before. I'm still waiting. I'm yeah. still waiting. Yeah, it's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. I'm, I'm, I'm I'm pushing this the the emoji song, which is one of the first songs off the album, and uh, you know just getting that out there, and that's like the teaser for the full thing. Well, and so when you get the album out there, you will come back on the show. I would love that. I mean, I can't have you. That have, would be wonderful. You can't have an album out there and not come back on the show to promote it. I, uh, that's just unacceptable. I would love. Thank you. That, that I would. I would love to come back. Yeah. Oh. You're a very good interviewer. You know, I have to say that. You you're very good you're very good at what you do. You're a good conversationalist and you you know, you ask you ask good questions. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. Yeah. No, I, it's it's true. I appreciate that. That does that means a lot to me. Um, especially when I know how many people that, you know, you and other talent that you talk to all the time. And the fact that you do yeah. come back on the show makes me very happy. Thank you. Ah, well. Thank you. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to throw you off because we have another repeat customer following you, Fran Kranz. Great. Actor Fran Kranz, uh, you know, he's got his new film along with writer-director Casey Wilder-Mott. They're going to follow you. And I got to say, you're a tough act to follow. You know, the the emoji song is a tough act to follow, Ben. (laughs) Thank but, you. Well, well every, I'm sure it's different. They're doing something different, you know. Well, that's true. That's true. <laughs> but everybody, Ben Roush Music, Spotify, Amazon, the Emoji Song, get it, listen to it. You will get hooked. You will want to listen to it forever while I pester Ben about getting Tales from the Turnpike done. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for having me on, Debbie. Thanks, Ben. I'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was the wonderful Ben Roush. And, yeah, and, hey, if you want to see some of his film work, he's in Jersey Boys, directed by Clint Eastwood, and he plays one of the Jersey Boys. So, but right now, we're going to bring two fabulous people online, and we're going to shift gears, and we're going to talk a little Shakespeare with the incredible writer-director Casey Wilder-Mott and Fran Kranz. Hello, boys. Hey, Hi, Debbie. how are you? I am so excited to talk to you guys again. We had so much fun yeah. last year when the film premiered at L.A. Film Festival. And, of course, Fran's been on the show in between. Casey, you're lagging behind, you know. you got to oh, invite me on more often, Debbie. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. He, you guys have an open <laughs> invitation for any time. I can't tell you <laughs> the minute I found out mid, a Midsummer Night's Dream got distribution I was actually shrieking 
when I saw the email <laughs> about the distribution. I was so excited because you guys know how much. I mean, you were one of my top must-see films at LAFF last year. And as I have long said, I told you guys, I even wrote it, you know, if you want people to like Shakespeare, they need to see this movie first. And they will fall in love with Shakespeare. And it's because of the the interpretation that you guys uh, bring to the table here. So I'm just congratulations on getting distribution so everyone can see it. Yeah, thanks, Debbie. Well, you know, it's a team effort, and, and you're part of the team, right? I mean, that write-up that you did for L.A. Film Festival was, was really critical for us, and we used it in the sales effort. And I, I imagine you've seen by now, we actually used one of your pull quotes in the official theatrical trailer. So, I you know, have, we're really oh, excited and honored. I have not. You haven't seen that? I have not. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah, well, we we figured you'd be excited by that. (laughs) Oh, God, thank you, guys. That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. It's not often people get to turn the tables on me on my own show. You guys just did it. Oh, my God, thank you. Oh, that is... Yeah, well, I'll make sure to send you a link as soon as we get off. And, uh, you know, you had such delightful things to to say about the film. We felt it would be a shame not to sort of, you know, plumb our feathers a little bit. Uh, but, you know, I, I've got to ask you, Casey, because there and now, Fran, you have done Shakespearean adaptations before as a performer. You did the wonderful one with Joss Whedon, Much Ado About Nothing, which was I just thought that was fabulous as well. You know, uh, integrating yep, these, these films, yeah. these, you know, age old stories, because um, everything of Shakespeare's we're going back into the into the 1500s. Um, but to contemporize them. And you do that so beautifully with A Midsummer's Night Dream, Casey, in your adaptation here, much as Joss did with his adaptation of Much Ado. So I'm curious what the adaptation process was like in bringing, retaining, you know, the language, retaining the story, but yet modernizing it for the 21st century audience and creating the incredible visuals, which for my money still, one of the most spectacular express uh, expressions of color uh, in a film uh, and the gradients of it, just absolutely beautiful. So for your process as a writer director, Casey, what challenges did you face? Yeah, that's a great question. There's a lot packed in there. You know, as a starting point, um, you know, Fran and I have both been just long, you know, long time, lifelong, basically Shakespeare nerds. Um, and, you know, I discovered it early on in a film. You know, my first exposure to Shakespeare was Zeffirelli's Hamlet. Um, and then I got really into it on stage. But I'd always been, you know, that kind of always felt like my entry point and my anchor point. Um, and I love the, you know, the sort of the tradition, uh, not just of adapting Shakespeare for film, but specifically the tradition within that of doing these modern adaptations. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned Joss's Much Ado About Nothing, which I think is a real high watermark. There's a couple other ones. I mean, probably the most iconic one is Boss Lerman's Romeo and Juliet, yeah. which was a film I saw when I was in high school, and it just sort of blew me away. I was just like at the age where I was ready to see something that was really going to change my trajectory. Um, and I was really into film at the time and really into Shakespeare. And this was something that just felt like an explosion of those two worlds. And it took this thing that I think is unfortunately seen as kind of inaccessible and sort of defeat and, and made it like really cool and sexy and throbbing and colorful and musical. And it, it gave me a whole new appreciation for Shakespeare that I think, you know, took my relationship to the work to a new level. So it's something I've wanted to do for a long time. And then in terms of like the more specific, you know, lead up to this film, um, I've been working in the business for like 10, 12 years and I'd done a variety of things. I'd, I'd been on what I think of as the more transactional side of Hollywood. I'd worked at a talent agency and a film financier. I'd done a bunch of script development with some great filmmakers. So I'd seen sort of that side of the business. Um, but I kind of always, like a lot of people, like secretly harvested, you know, an ambition to write and direct films myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I cranked this one out. I knew I wanted to do some kind of Shakespeare thing. I tinkered with a few ideas. I thought that the way the characters and the plot and the themes of Midsummer Night's Dream 
could be reimagined as an L.A. story was really fitting, you know? I mean, L.A. is an interesting kind of fairy tale place, right? There are these fairy tale characters who lead these very sort of larger-than-life existences. Um, so it felt like the fit was right, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm always, Fran and I talked about this early on, you know, I was really excited to have him as a collaborator, you know, I'm pretty suspicious of any, particularly a Shakespeare modernization, because they can feel kind of pat. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to make sure that this didn't feel that way, you know, especially to people who are familiar with not just this play, but, you know, the work of Shakespeare in general. So when Fran read it and kind of fell in love with it and, you know, attached himself to it immediately as not just a cast member, but a producer, you know, that felt really validating. And that felt like, okay, great. You know, now we've got a shot to make this thing happen. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, Fran, as as an actor, you know, number one, you come, you, you get this script and it's for most actors, if you're theatrically trained, of course, you've got Shakespeare in your blood. Other actors may, may have some trepidation about doing Shakespeare, but I think, all actors, at some point in their career, they really want to do Shakespeare. You now have gotten the chance to do Shakespeare twice in modernized versions, but two very distinct versions. And here is Bottom. You know my love for your character of Bottom in this film and how you play him. (laughs) So I'm curious about how your approach then became once you got involved with Casey and you saw what this script was. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, first of all, two is not enough, Debbie. That is not enough. I want a lot more Shakespeare on my resume. Uh, I uh, No, yeah, that's how I fell in love with acting, right? In high school, college, it was particularly the Shakespeare plays that I found this kind of depth, bottomless sort of opportunity in that changed my uh, idea of what uh, acting could be and, mm-hmm. and that it wasn't just something fun to do, but a real passion and something I could spend my entire life doing that the sort of, uh, pursuit and challenge of it was, was fulfilling on that level. And, and that happened doing specifically, uh, Shakespeare plays. Mm-hmm. So I've always had this kind of, uh, love and debt to it really, you know what I mean? That, that I'm always looking to do it. And I also love doing theater and that there's something about, doing Shakespeare on film that kind of fulfills me in the way that uh, the theatrical process does. And I'm not even going to begin to sort of think or sort of try and ramble on about why that might be here now, but but it's just his work and his words are just so fulfilling. Um, With Casey's adaptation, and I I got to say, I love Much of Joss's Much Ado About Nothing. It's great, but the difference, I think, is that that just happens to be a movie in a modern setting. Mm-hmm. Um, just it, That was a kind of uh, necessities, the mother of invention kind of thing. You know, right. Josh had two weeks to shoot the thing, and, and, and there was no option but to shoot it at his house. And right. while it's wonderful in its sort of modern reimagining of the play, it's much more, uh, it, it just happens to be at a, a 21st century home, you know what I mean? Right. Whereas, whereas what Casey did, it's almost, it, it's, it's essential the play is where it is um, and, and the adaptation, that Los Angeles is essential to the story. And in a sense, it's kind of, um, uh, uh, and, and Midsummer Night's Dream is essential to the sort of structure of Hollywood that Casey was just talking about. Mm-hmm. So there's almost this kind of symbiotic relationship to the two parts and what Casey did, and which I think is, is a really kind of transcendental adaptation, something that's sort of much more inspired than just uh, a film that happens to take place in a certain environment or time period, as opposed to the the time period or the environment actually changes the way you think about the material and vice versa. I mean, I will never be able to look at this play the same way because of how Casey has rethought it and mm-hmm. reconceived it. The same way it, I grew up in Los Angeles, it's my home, I don't look at L.A. the same way anymore because of Casey's reconceiving of Los Angeles through this play. There's this kind of wonderful mutual evolve, evolution that sort of happened here with these two things. So as an actor, this was kind of a dream job because I got to be fulfilled in that kind of uh, core sort of that level for me, that kind of that, that sort of nascent sort of, you know, this is how it all started for me. I love Shakespeare, love doing it this way. So to do it on film about the city I grew up in, uh, there were just so many kind of angles about this um, 
and about the business I work in, you know, on and on and on. There were so many angles that made this a really fulfilling, uh, wonderful sort of project for me, a special, special project. Well, you know, because you're also a producer, Fran, and, and you know, you, Casey, is writer, director, and a producer, you know, I've got to bring up, because the visuals and the interpretation and the reimagination of Los Angeles and the play are, it, it is, you know, Visually, it's it's tactile, it's colorful, um, it's a panthe. I I'd said before, it's a pantheon of visual delights. Um, Got to bring up your cinematographer Daniel Katz and your production designer Glenn Hall, and the importance yeah. of them in the structure and design and composition of this film. So Dan was actually someone I had met through Fran, and that was, um, you know, that was part of Fran. You know, he brought a lot of value to the project beyond just himself and his enthusiasm, like particularly in the arena of the cast that he helped get me access Mm -hmm. to. I mean, one of the sort of quirks about how this film came together was we didn't have a casting director until like 10 days before we started shooting. And we had 90% of our cast in place at that point because Fran and I just kind of did it ourselves. And it was sort of this, I mean, mini miracle that we ended up with this just fabulous, fabulous collection of actors, um, but really a testament to Fran. And as part of that, he also brought in some other people, some department heads, you know, specifically Dan. And Dan was a guy who, you know, I'd looked at a lot of his previous work and we'd, you know, gone out to lunch and dinner and gotten to know each other a bit. And I was really impressed with his artistry, you know. I mean, he's mm-hmm. like a lot of cinematographers. He's a real artist, you know, yeah. and he's very, very committed to the quality of what he does. Um, and you know, he'd worked on commercials that had big budgets and then he'd also worked on indie films that had no budget. So I knew that he was going to be able to work within the context of what we were going to be working with. Um, and Fran should probably speak a bit more about Daniel as well, since they, you know, they have a longstanding relationship. And then Glenn was also just, you know, kind of a stroke of luck. He was brought in by the line producer, a guy named Doug Matica. Um, and Glenn, you know, I met with four or five different people and, Honestly, they all had good work. They all had good resumes. Glenn was kind of just the guy I liked most personally. Mm-hmm. You know, he seemed very sort of at ease with what we were doing. I mean, a lot of people sort of, I would say, jokingly, but nonetheless sort of expressed some sort of reservation or trepidation about the Shakespeare thing. And Glenn just came in and he's like, this is cool, man. Like, I, got, I have a handle on this. You know, here are my, here's my boards. Here's what I want to do. Here's what I'm thinking. And I really liked that. You know, I really liked that he didn't seem intimidated by the material. Yeah, because and yeah, he did it. He did such an incredible job. I mean, he he built sets in 24 hours, which is which is sort of typical of a I mean, you know, and it, that happens on an independent film shoot. Mm-hmm. You know, you're putting together you know rooms of and homes and things like that. But to build you know Titania's bower or something is a whole. It's just a whole nother level of of sort of commitment and imagination and just hard work. So Glenn Glenn was constantly blowing me away with what he was putting together under the circumstances and and just the sort of detail and imagination sort of that, that he had. It was really it was really impressive the work Casey and Glenn did together. And uh, Daniel, yeah, I've been a huge fan of Daniel for a long time. Uh, he shot the Oscar winning short Curfew, which my friend, good friend Sean Christensen, Andrew Napier Sean produced or directed, wrote and starred in. Andrew helped produce and so there were a lot of guys in this kind of mutual friend group that we were drawing on and that uh in, in basically under a year in which from script to screen we started shooting i think i think we were in principal photography uh it's faster than sort of any project i've i've known about it in terms of when it when you actually get the script um so that was really that was really impressive so all these guys kind of came together because of this enthusiasm over over the script Tracy Casey produced pretty well, great you know and i i have to mention uh with daniel for anybody out there who has not yet seen the film Vanishing of Sydney Hall, Daniel's also the cinematographer oh, yeah. on that. And it's like you want talk about seeing the range, but the visual storytelling that he does with lighting and lensing yeah. and framing. I mean, for, be it Midsummer Night's Dream or Vanishing of Sydney Hall, this will show you the great range and talent that Daniel has. Um, He's fantastic, yeah. Because, uh, of course, I had seen Midsummer's Night first, uh, and then I saw Sydney Hall just a few months ago uh, before it got its re- its release, and I was blown away 
I was already impressed with Daniel's work, but then to see the differentials that he brings and the nuance and his range, that's just, it sold me forever on Daniel. Sold me forever on Daniel. Yeah. As a cinematographer. Another Sean Christensen movie there, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Not to plug Sean so much. You can plug whoever you want. You guys can plug whoever you want. You know, somebody that I got a that I got a plug that uh is in Midsummer's Night is Hamish Linklater. Um Yeah. And he just finished doing a live the live performance with Tom Hanks of I Shakespeare. Know, which and I saw the other night or um, what was that, a couple weeks ago now? Yeah. I think it's closed now. It's yeah, and it closed on July first. Um and he's another he's another performer. He has a great grasp. Of Shakespeare and the cadence yeah. of of Shakespeare, was that uh, something that was a strong consideration when you were casting this film? Because there are people that I've seen do Shakespeare and they do not get the pantam the, the pentameter, they don't get the cadence uh, vocally, and it's a train wreck. But everyone here, the rhythm flows with the dialogue. The pickup, the delivery, um, and I imagine that had to have come into play for you when you were doing casting, and in rehearsals, as brief as they are in a low budget, no budget film. Yeah, you know, honestly, it did and it didn't. You know, it, it did in that, of course, early on we said, God, we'd we'd like to work with great actors, and specifically with actors who have some grounding in this material. Um, but because you know the casting was kind of an informal process, a very sort of, you know, friend of a friend kind of a process. Um, there was no kind of grand design, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Fran and I went out to lunch and made a list, you know, <laughs> and then went back home and started making phone calls. And we were, I think we were lucky. We were like extremely lucky with the people that we got. And of course, working with, you know, Finn and Hamish and Lily and, and of course, Fran, like people like that who were super comfortable with the material was great, you know, and I think that the proof is in the pudding, you know, you just have to watch the film to see, how facile in a good way and, you know, how comfortable with the language they are. Um, but then, you know, we also worked with some people who I think turned in equally compelling performances like Rachel Lee Cook and Ted Levine, who had mm-hmm. done almost no Shakespeare yeah. but in Rachel's case, none, you know, and I was actually a little concerned about that early on. And Rachel shared that concern, you know, cause everyone wants to do a good job. But I remembered this interview I read with Ken Brana years ago when he had sort of, you know, very, quickly and successfully made the transition from fetid British stage director to, you know, Hollywood filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, and, you know, he's obviously as someone who takes Shakespeare as serious as anyone, right? Oh. I mean, it's been his whole life. And he said when he did his Much Ado About Nothing, he wa- there were a couple people that he worked with who had done little to no Shakespeare on that film, which was a very well-received, successful movie. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't worried about it at all. He thought that the interplay, he said, as long as they were good actors and they showed up to do the work and I can work with them to make it all make sense, you know, the interplay between them and the people who do really have the grounding and the tradition is really electric and really interesting and creates the mm-hmm. kind of thing that is another way to differentiate something like this from a stage play where, you know, you're never going to see a Shakespeare stage play at a high level that doesn't have experienced experienced actors, you know? Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really an interesting insight, and I sort of, you know, I imported that idea into the casting on this film as well. You know, I'm glad you brought up yeah. Ted Levine I remember, because... You, oh, sorry. No, I was, I, I, I was just going to say, I, I remember Casey mentioning, you know, in the, in the casting process, it, there was always, I, I, I thought, a, a, uh, an idea it, that, that it would be beneficial to have a mixture of, of backgrounds, you know what I mean? That, that mm-hmm. at one point, if it was going to be t- Titania or Oberon, with maybe with some more training or classical training or Shakespeare, you know, so, and, and then have the lovers be, you know, uh, from kind of another sort of school of acting or different kind of, you know, more traditional film or television actors. So I know that uh, to have it be eclectic was an, was an idea that that we thought would be good and important to the film. How it ended up falling together that you have you know, with, with Finn, Lily, and Hamish, three three really, really seasoned, you know, New York Shakespeare actors in the lover sort of category. That that just sort of, I think, ended up the way it did, like Casey said, but who was sort of ready and available. But um, uh, I, I know that the idea that it, it's bringing in different textures into performance was always going to be a good thing for the movie that's the, and the story that, that really is about different worlds. 
you know, coming together. Mm-hmm. And I have to say... And that, you know, I, I know you want to talk about Ted, Debbie, but I want to, because you mentioned the fairies, Fran. I got to say, like, I think where that really shows up most clearly is with Mia and Saul, neither of whom have yeah. really done, you know, much theater. I mean, Saul had done, actually had done some. Mia hadn't done any since high school. But I think because they're both musicians and poets, they are as kind of in a very different way, but they are as adept and as compelling with this material as the people who have done, you know, 20, 30 plus Shakespeare Mm -hmm. plays, you know, they just have a different relationship to the language that's obviously more musical in its texture. And I think it's beautiful to see the contrast between the way that, you know, the quartet of lovers, the quintet of the mechanicals and the, and the fairies in the woods, they all have these kind of different approaches to the, to the words. And I know you want to talk about Ted, so let's let's get into that. Well, I, he was the biggest surprise for me in this film. Um, seeing Ted do Shakespeare was the biggest surprise for me. <laughs> you know that that was a real shocker to me. But he felt totally at home. You know, similarly, you know, for me and Saul as Titania and Oberon, they were just perfection. The fluidity and the languid nature of their performance and their delivery was exquisitely done. Yeah, I think it's yeah. Cool. They're I mean they're amazing, and um, they you know I had wanted a very musical adaptation from the beginning, mm-hmm. and and me as a friend of mine, so I reached out to her and she was interested, and then she got Saul involved, and as a secondary consideration I'd had in the back of my mind, huh, maybe because they're musicians. And Saul has a little bit more experience as an actor. He's a real renaissance man. I mean, he does just about everything, you know. Um, But Mia's really more kind of categorically a musician who told me, she's like, look, I haven't acted literally since high school, but I think this is really cool and I want to be involved. Um, And that for me was more of a producerial strategic play, you know, to to get a great album together. But, you know, a great side benefit of it is that they, you know, as we were talking about, they had this sort of extraordinary take on the material. As far as Ted goes, um, Ted was like pretty much the last guy cast. He was, you know, I mentioned earlier that we brought a casting director in at the last Mm -hmm. minute because we had a couple roles that hadn't been filled, and that was one of them. And, you know, he was one of the only people I didn't meet with beforehand. I met him on set when he showed up. I loved working with him. And, and he was also, you know, like a lot of other people, he was very upfront. He's like, look, I haven't done a lot of this stuff. I'm going to sort of, you know, hope that I can rely on you to help me out, you know, off, off camera and figuring this stuff out. And I said, of course. But I think the thing, there was a, a moment and a side between me and Ted on about like the second day of his time on set that was like, it, it revealed so much to me about him as an actor was he said, he said, you know what, even though Theseus is kind of like the, the power figure in, of all of these people, like I get that the play is like not in the least bit about him. And like, I'm really supposed to be here to help tell the story of all these other people, you mm-hmm. know, which was like, was a great insight for him as an actor. And I think I could see it in his performance. He was very gracious about like, how do I make these other people shine, you know, which is really like a, like an, a, oldest time canard in the acting world yeah. like you know the way to make yourself better is to make your scene partners better and ted just kind of knew that intuitively with the material you know i'm curious how challenging was the editing of this film because here again the pacing and you know and the fact that true shakespearean you broke it into acts for us act one two three four five you know but how challenging uh, was the editing process it was challenging for a number of reasons. Yeah. Um, you know, I was, I, yeah, I, that's, a, that's a knowing laugh from Fran. <laughs> um, the main reason it was challenging was because I had a very, like, clear editorial aesthetic in mind mm-hmm. when we set out to make the film. Like, even before we started editing, when, we, you know, when I scripted it, I had a, a specific sort of editorial vision in mind. And, you know, I ended up, you know, there ended up being three editors on the film, one of which was me. And the first editor was this guy, Curtis Clayton, who we were really lucky to land. I mean, he's sort of like a legend in the indie film world. He was, you know, Gus Van Sant's editor for mm-hmm. a long time. And then he did a couple of movies with Andrew Dominic and he did Vincent Gallo films. And he, you know, like I was saying about Dan, he's like a very, very serious artist. And, you know, working with him was really rewarding. Um, but then we also got to a place where, you know, we really had to dig into the nitty gritty of like, how do you make this funny little jump cut or this funny little in and out cut or this funny little flash forward 
you know, or this odd, uh, you know, stock footage sequence, because we, we were working with a lot of texture, you know, we were doing mm-hmm. a lot of different things. And, you know, we brought in another guy to help with that, who just had sort of the patience to really like do all of the trial and error. And he ended up at his Saul Herkis, he ended up adding, you know, a huge amount of value, because even though he was younger and less seasoned than Curtis, you know, he just has very good instincts, and he was like a terrific collaborator. You know, he didn't have problems spending 10 hours on something trying to get it just right. Um, so it was a challenge, but, like, I think, I think it worked out. You know, I'm, I'm proud of a lot of things about this film, but, like, pretty high on the list is how, it, how the editing unfolds. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's some really, you know, not to sound pompous, but I, I think there's some pretty sophisticated stuff in there, you know, for a first-time director. And, like, that's the stuff as the director that I'm sort of, you know, I'm comfortable sort of hanging my spurs on the most. Well, I can honestly tell you that watching this film... From script to screen, it belies you being a first-time director, Casey. Looking at this film, one would never know this is a first feature. I'm I'm, I'm flattered. I appreciate it. You know, of course, as the director, I think this is the case for anyone. Like, all I see with the film is all the stuff that's wrong with it. (laughs) You know? (laughs) We're not going to talk about that. I mean, it's... Just the pure ambition, I think, and the kind of uh, imagination behind what, what you did, Casey, with, in terms of the, the story, always blew me away from the beginning. And to see it, yeah, to see it on screen, absolutely, I agree with you, Debbie. It's, it's really, really, really cool and exciting. And, and I think with the, the editing, another thing that I, I, I don't know if this was that challenging, honestly, Casey, but with, with Shakespeare, it, you know, we're lucky with sort of modern colloquial language and editing films. You, you overlap, you can kind of be on one person for another person's line. There's so much freedom um, in the way we speak today when it comes to uh, in, in editing a film. Mm-hmm. And with Shakespeare, there's a certain reverence for the language, even when you're doing a modern adaptation and even when you're kind of having fun with it the way we do in this film. And there's, there's still, I think... Uh, boundaries and kind of obstacles that the language imposes on on how you have to listen to it and hear mm-hmm. it and even mm-hmm. see yep. it, you know. Yeah. Um, that that I must that, that must have been a whole a whole another challenge in the editing process that doesn't make anything any easier, you know. So I, I was so impressed with how it came out, and you know, even from and I, I think it's it's different even from last than it is now, right? I think when you first saw it, maybe oh yeah, slightly tweaked. It yeah, has right. been it has been you it know is, retweaked yeah. a little, and and that was you know that's where Curtis was really incredible is because Curtis originally was an actor you know he he came to L A twenty whatever years old and was an actor for a year and then he sort of you know he ended up as an editor so he really understands the value of like cutting for performance mm-hmm. and you know he did a great he did a great job to that effect um, you know, all the stuff in the second act that's kind of trickier and flashier, mm-hmm. which for me was never, it wasn't supposed to be gratuitous. You know, it was like the, the, the second act, it's very explicitly stated in the play, is like kind of a dream, you know, and then the characters start asking each other, was that a dream? Was I dreaming? Were we having some sort of weird collective dream? So I thought, you know, it was important to utilize the tools you have in filmmaking that you don't have in theater to create a dreamlike, a dreamlike atmosphere, you know, for mm-hmm. the characters to populate and I thought, well, particularly on a low budget, you know, the easiest way to do that is to, you know, throw some sort of off-center editing in there. Right. Um, and then, you know, the, like the dream within a dream and the play within a play. Midsummer Night's Dream is very famous for the play within a play, mm-hmm. which is kind of a, a common Shakespearean device. But, you know, what's kind of less obvious about it are the ways that it's a dream within a dream. And mm-hmm. I wanted to explore that as well. Um, so, you know, editing was just the way to make it happen. Well, again, as I have said about this film since the very beginning last year, everyone should see this film and they will fall in love with Shakespeare. This should be required viewing in junior high school before you stick a copy of Merchant of Venice in somebody's hand to read. <laughs> and and you, they will become, they will love Shakespeare if they see this film first before anybody starts just sticking words on a page in front of them. Um, God. Yeah, I mean, we're, I'm sure I speak for Fran as well. Like, we're, we're so happy to hear that because that was, I mean, he and I, you know, explicitly talked about this early on. Like, that was one of our agenda items, you know, with the film. You know, we both discovered Shakespeare early on. It was just really through good fortune more than anything else. 
And, you know, there, there is a way to present it to someone, you know, that will allow them to have a, an enriching lifelong relationship with it. And if, you know, not to sound cliche, but like if this film can do that even for one person, like I think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Well, unfortunately, guys, we are out of time today. But before I let you go, the film opens this Friday at the New Art in L.A. Where else is it opening so other people can see it? Well, the the easiest thing to do is to go to the website, a Midsummer Night's Dream movie dot com. And that has the full release schedule for the summer. We're playing in about half a dozen markets right now, Boston, Philly, D.C., San Diego, New Orleans. Um, We're working on releases in Chicago and New York and the Bay Area. And, you know, because we're in, you know, we're sort of plugged into the landmark uh, system, Mm -hmm. you know, hopefully if if we have a, a robust number this weekend, which all of your listeners can, you know, go out and help us accomplish, we'll get to book, you know, another, you know, another couple markets. So, you know, we're really excited about it and bringing it to audiences. And, um, you know, it's been a, it's been a thrill all along. Well, it has been a thrill to be on part of this journey with you guys. I am just so excited and so happy for you and to see this film now making its way out there for everyone else to see. Congratulations. Um, Thanks, Debbie. Oh, you guys are something else. And, of course, you'll both be back on the show again. I know that. That goes with I, yeah, I love it. Yeah, of course. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Guys, thank you so, so much. And I will talk to you again soon. And everybody, A Midsummer's Night Dream thanks, Debbie, in Debbie. theaters Friday. So, thanks, yeah, guys. Friday, come see it. Uh, and that would have been see my... Thank everyone. Thanks, Debbie. Thanks, Fran. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Bye. And that was Casey Weldermont and Fran Kranz, A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, in limited release this Friday and expanding from there. Go to the website, a com to get the complete re- uh, release schedule. That is all the time we have today. We are six minutes over right now. Um, we did not get to go back to Eduardo Ballerini talking Seven Splinters. Uh, I'm going to plug that in next Monday, as a matter of fact, so you can at least hear some of that if you don't check out uh, what I eventually get out later tonight on uh, Seven Splinters with Gabe and Eduardo. And look for Ben Roush and the Emoji Song. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. (laughs) 